Hey, it's 2021 Afro Masculinity Podcast turning a year old. I've been away for a while. COVID-19 has been doing a number on us. So many good things to talk about. So many hard things to talk about. Really hoping you're keeping safe wherever you are, holding space with loved ones. I'm your host Onyango Otieno from Nairobi, Kenya. Am I glad to be back on this mic? talking the complexities of the identities of African masculinities. And for this year, we're going to be adding some flesh in our conversations, going deeper into the intricacies of healing from trauma as individuals and communities. From wherever you're listening, I feel blessed to have your attention. This first episode is brought to you by The Predators, a book authored by Kenyan High Court Judge Ruth Sitati to raise consciousness on the prevalence of sexual abuse. She accounts cases brought before court of the sexual abuse of minors, illuminating the gravity of this vice, especially in our homes. Brace yourself for a heavy session as we concentrate on the rape of boys and men, starting with my story. You can purchase the book on thepredators.co.ke. That's thepredators.co.ke. Or for my people, thepredators.co.ke. Let's tell our stories. I was home for December holidays in 2009. On the third week, my mother hired a new housekeeper. She was gracefully tall, quiet, and seemingly kind. When the new year arrived, my parents went back to work. My siblings reopened school. We were to open later in the month, meaning I was left home with the housekeeper. She was quiet, I was quiet, only spoke once in a while. My daily routine spanned from leaving home at about 11 a.m. to hang out with my friends, returning at about 3 p.m., settle for some music on MTV, then wait for the day to fade away. On the second week of January, I came home one day, usual 3 p.m. On this afternoon, she had made some mandazi and tea. Now, I really love mandazi, and she made them irresistibly good. I thought it was just one of those tea evenings that were a norm at home. Three days later, she cooked the mandazis again, but this time, they were heart-shaped. I entered the house hungry and set myself to devour the delicacy. As I switched on the TV and opened the flask, she sat on the other end of the couch. We carried a light conversation whose weight I can't recall, but for some reason, it is so vivid in my mind that on that afternoon, her cleavage was a little more pronounced than usual. I noticed her with my side eye, slowly moving closer to me as if cunningly. We were talking, MTV was playing, it was sunny, and all I was thinking about wasn't the weather or the music, but the mandazis before me. And then at some point, she had gotten near me, which I wasn't paying too much attention to. I saw her reach out for a piece of mandazi. Thinking it was for her consumption, she directed it to my mouth, wanting to feed me. I was confused. We didn't know each other like that. But I opened my mouth, nevertheless, to receive the kind gesture. It was Mandazi after all. But the thing is, I had an abusive childhood, so any time I felt under threat, my brain would shut down to protect me from any impending danger. 
and I would cooperate with whoever I perceived was harming me until they finished their deed. Most times, that was my father. Before I knew it, and I think this is the part I was chewing, she grabbed my hand and placed my tiny body on the living room table and did me a lap dance. I don't remember how we got to the bedroom, but I recall her asking me to take my shirt off. In my mind, I was about to have sex, but this is not how I thought sex should feel, since I was a virgin, you see. Experimenting with porn and masturbation was the farthest I had gone. But this, this was an actual woman's body. She wasn't on the screen anymore, and that too was confusing because we never talked about it. She pulled my trousers down and forced my member into her insides. I was scared. I was inside her, or maybe she was inside me. Things happened so quick. She pushed my body against hers. I wasn't so sure what to do. I felt the sensation of ejaculation streaming swiftly in my young pipe, and in that panic, pulled out, pouring myself onto the sheets. Then she agitatedly asked, Why did you do that? You're such a coward. I put my trousers back on and rushed out of the house to take a walk, not knowing how to feel. We never talked about the incident, and I didn't say anything to my parents about what had happened. I am reading from Ruth Citate's The Predators, the story of Vincent, not his real name. There is no electricity in the estate, just dim yellow light from lanterns glimmering in different houses. The houses are arranged in rows of five or more, and there are no fences to demarcate them. It is early July. The sun turns the green leaves into shades of gold in the evenings. In the afternoon, it burns everything in its path. At night, all the houses are engulfed in the heat, which makes almost everyone go outside to sit at the porch until midnight. Lolo lives alone with her six-year-old son, Vincent. Their house sits on the ground floor of an old single-story building in the estate. There are about ten families in the compound and each occupies two rooms. At dusk, Vincent's mother decides she needs to buy some milk from the kiosk in the estate. She lights a lantern and places it on the low wooden table in the living room. I will be back soon, Vin, she calls out to her son. The boy answers from the back of the house where he is filling ant holes in the sand with water. He enjoys watching the water go in through one hole and out through another some distance away. The flood he has created submerges all the ants or drives out the bigger ones. The evening light is growing dim but Lolo can still make out faces as she walks out into the street. A group of children carrying water in plastic jerry cans walks by and they cheerfully say hello. She responds as she continues walking briskly. The open square, which serves as a meeting place for the estate, is filled with adults and children. Halfway to the kiosk, it strikes Lolo that she should return home at the very moment. She is a little worried about Vincent but pushes the feeling away. Their estate is safe. The lack of fences makes it easy for everyone to see or hear what is happening in every house. This is not the first time she is leaving Vincent on his own. 
Her mind wanders to the day when he was born. His eyes large and beautiful, his lips thin. Now at six years, he has grown even more handsome. She'd have loved to have more children, but after Vincent's father died, her longing for another child remained a dream. At the kiosk, Lolo meets Abuya, a woman from the nearby estate who is recently bereaved. They exchange pleasantries and Abuya tells Lolo how the funeral went. They discuss the matter for a while but throughout the chat, Lolo is disturbed by a continuous tug at her heart to go home. By the time the two women part ways, the night has made thick and looming shadows out of everything. There is a small crowd outside her door. Her heart thuds loudly and she squints, trying to make out who the people are and if Vincent is there. Her son has no history of convulsions, so what could be wrong? She sweeps into the house and finds Vincent in the arms of one of their female neighbors. He is silent, but looks like someone who has been crying for a long time. Mama, he whispers. Vin, she replies. Her heartbeats are almost audible. What happened, Vin? I didn't stay away too long, did I? She asks as she takes him into her arms and cuddles him. Kiko, a young man who lives on the first floor of their building, narrates how he heard a child screaming downstairs and immediately rushed downwards. He discovered that the sounds were coming from Vincent, so he pushed their door open and found the boy cushioned under Tony, a young man from their estate. What did that animal do to my son? What did he do to my Vin? Vincent's mother yells, stripping Vincent of his knickers to examine him. He raped him, Kiko mutters. There is too much wickedness in this world, says another. Tony's clothes are littered on the floor. Kiko had hit him hard across the face, forcing him to flee naked from the house and disappear into the night. More neighbors pour in. Abuya, the woman who was chatting with Vincent's mother at the kiosk, has also joined the crowd. The news has spread to her estate. What happened? What is happening? They all pause at the same time. Lolo carries Vincent on her back and leaves for the house of the assistant chief of the community. Kiko and two other women accompany her. The assistant chief asks Kiko whether he is sure that it was Tony he saw. Kiko confirms that he is sure. The assistant chief takes them to the area chief who advises them to go to the police station to report the incident. The police take Tony's clothes, which Kiko brought along. Then they issue Lola with a P3 form for the purpose of seeking medical treatment for Vincent. The following morning, Lolo takes Vincent to the health center where his anal area is examined. His anus is reddish and has some swelling, proof that he was sexually assaulted. By evening of the same day, Kiko, Lolo and Vincent receive an invitation from the police. When they get there, they find that Tony is already in custody. Kiko and Vincent identify Tony as the culprit. On the day after his arrest, Tony is arraigned before a court and charged with defiling a minor. He pleads guilty to the crime and is sentenced to life in jail. The whole estate erupts with joy when they hear the news. But only Lolo knows that Vincent is not the same boy she left at home that evening as she went to buy some milk from the kiosk. 
He has stopped playing with the ants and does not try to drown them. He stares at things for long periods as if trying to unmask another face beneath every surface. His light has dimmed. He is no longer a child. I remember when I first came out with my story in November 2019 on Twitter, the first time since it happened a decade before. I received much support from both men and women, but also underwent immense cyberbullying from many men, saying things like, you must have liked it, you're just looking for clout, I wish I could submit myself to be raped by a woman, there's no way a woman can rape a man, there was everything. However, what piqued my attention most was the number of men who reached out to my inbox confessing to have gone through the same ordeal at 5, 6, 13, 18 years old in the hands of housekeepers, aunties, older cousins, uncles, and trusted neighbors. Some said they're struggling with intimacy in their marriages. They've never told their wives about their silent struggle with the trauma. They fear to be misunderstood. Some said... Their pastors in church, preaching the gospel with hidden wounds they can't open to their congregations because a man cannot say such things. A man cannot have undergone rape. I remember a particular story from this guy who said he was sodomized and robbed by people he knew. It was devastating. In his anger and desperation, he hired goons to go kill them. And he said he knows they'll never do such a thing to anyone else because... They are rotting in their graves. I'm happy that Judge Ruth Setati penned this book. Of course, by the numbers, stories of violated girls are more. For the boys, there is massive underreporting. We have to speak the pain out and even risk our freedom for being misunderstood because something has got to give at some point. The silence is killing us. In my trauma therapy practice, very few men feel comfortable admitting they need help. But most times, they don't know where to look. If you're a man listening to this or know a man who is in need of trauma healing therapy, please write me an email to therapy at onyangootieno.com. That's therapy at onyangootieno.com. We can begin to discuss how to support you through the services I offer. To get Ruth Sitati's book, visit www.thepredators.co.ke. That's www.thepredators.co.ke and order a copy. It's an oddly difficult time in the world right now. Many of us are losing loved ones, jobs, and body agency. The future seems bleak as nobody can predict when we can enthusiastically get back to our life's activities. As a result, our mental health is in grave danger. I hope that you can find some light amidst all this darkness to recreate yourself and wade through something don't be afraid to ask for help support the people around you if you're in a position to help your community thank you for tuning in today